Hey fellow nerds, welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett, and my guest today is Kristen Eberham, who is a software engineer, and a Kristen Eberham also makes hand-lettered greeting cards with fun illustrations and quirky pun phrases. Kristen also draws food. You can find her on Etsy on Henson Handmade or Instagram at the same one, Henson Handmade. Welcome, Kristen. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. You said welcome. I say thank you. (laughs) I got that. Kristen is sitting next to me. This is our first in-person recording. I'm so excited. Yeah, because Kristen lives in Philly, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um... And we are actually looking at her Instagram because I forgot to have her send me a bio ahead of time. And I see, I'm looking at the first picture, which is, holy, it's a picture of a card that uh, she hand lettered that says, holy fuck, you're old. That was a custom request from a friend of mine. Yeah, that is funny and beautiful. Yeah. Her dad is turning 65 and she wanted to give him that card. <laughs> Can you make a card that says, holy fuck, you're old, because my dad will love this. And I was like, yes, I can. This sounds amazing. I'd like to be in a room with the two of them. Yeah. I feel like that's that's a good dynamic right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I It's funny. So I asked Kristen on for a couple reasons. One is because um, we have a movie night, mm-hmm. and... Uh, you've become the unofficial trivia guru of the movie night. Yep. Um, and I think it started because you just happened to know a lot of trivia and then you started looking trivia up, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's how it evolved. Yeah, I, generally anytime I watch a movie, even outside of our movie nights together, I will look up the IMDb trivia page and just read the Wikipedia page and read every possible piece of information I can about the movie because I want to know the history behind it. And a lot of times there's cool facts in there that I really enjoy so this is not unique to movie night this is a thing that I do as a person every time I watch a movie totally and I feel like I mean I feel like you happen you have amassed like shelves of cool cool facts inside your head yes like you just do know a lot about random stuff yeah I I do well at at Quizzo when we do go to Trivia in a bar, you know. Yeah, that's a, a thing you are skilled at. And yeah. you also used to run. Yeah, I, I also hosted uh, a trivia night, a quizzo, at a bar mm-hmm. that we went to all the time. For you non-Philadelphian listeners, quizzo is trivia in Philadelphian. Yeah, <laughs> it's just pub trivia, Yeah, but we call it quizzo. Yeah, which is way more whimsical and fun. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a lot better. It's, it's more enticing than just pub trivia. Pub trivia, you're like, all right, well, you're at a bar, you're answering questions. But like Quizzo, you know, it just sounds like a game in itself. It's it's better. Yeah, and and so I was like, well, if I invite if I invite Kristen on, like you could probably talk about anything. Yeah. Like I had no idea where you'd go, and I sort of thought maybe you'd go somewhere having to do with art or your greeting cards because that is like an art um it's a big art part the arty part of your life right yes yeah that's um like my side business so I really enjoy drawing and hand lettering so that's like I choose to spend my free time doing that I really enjoy it but I feel like uh while I do spend a lot of time in it I don't really spend a lot of time researching the art that I'm doing 
Yeah. Um, like a lot of times they're either requests or um, rather straightforward things. Like I have a series of foods from Philly and like I did kind of look into what are popular foods in Philly, but also I just know what they are. Like I don't really need to do a lot of research behind that. Um, if anything, uh, the only research that I'd be doing there is what particular um, like restaurant or source I'm using for the food that I'm drawing. So each of the foods, I'm drawing my favorite version of that food. So we have um, water ice, which is kind of like Rita's Italian ice for non-Philadelphian people. Uh, we call it water ice. Uh, specifically water, not water. Right. Water, water. W-O-O-D. Yeah. E-R. <laughs> you have to say it with the Philly accent. But um, I am drawing water ice from John's water ice at uh, 7th and Christian. So, like, I'm drawing my favorite versions of all of the, the foods that I've drawn. So, like, the cheesesteak is Tony Luke's cheesesteak because they're my favorite cheesesteak. So, um, it's not, like, that's really the only level of research that I'm doing is, like, which cheesesteak will I draw? Is it, like... <laughs> Pads <laughs> No, because they're awful. I'll draw Tony Luke's because they're the best. But And then yeah. do you draw from memory? No. No, I will Google it and find a, a photo and use that as a reference. Drawing from memory, I would not. It, like, especially with a the cheesesteak, there's just so many folds in the meat. Like, there's no way you can draw that. Yeah. And have it look good. They're, like, the drawings that I tend to draw tend to be very realistic and, like, have a lot of detail in them. So I would not have been able to do that from memory. Yeah, there's a lot coming out the sides, too. And yeah. I don't know how you would get the, like says the actual non-visual artist like the dimensions of it you yeah. know yeah that would be hard I would think yeah I wouldn't There's get a lot the of size of the roll right or yeah. anything that would be very difficult but yeah they're all drawn from like photo references my face lit up when you said uh the the water ice place uh-huh. it was John's. Uh, John's I've never been there oh god they're fantastic they're your fave when Obama came to Philly he went to John's water ice oh so shit just so you know, Obama-approved water ice in Philly. Like, they are the destination. They're, they're the best spot. They're, like, they have the water ice that I drew from there. Um, like, I drew, they always put it in a, a jazz solo cup. So it's a the cup with the jazz print on the side, which is very recognizable. It's got the, the blue and the purple squiggly that looks like the 80s. Um, but they always put the water ice in that cup. Um, and they have four flavors that they call the always flavors. So they're available all the time. Um, and they're... Uh, chocolate cherry um pineapple and lemon um so those are the always flavors and then they also have sometimes flavors that they have like from time to time so like july they generally have like a blueberry cheesecake flavor and a bunch of other delicious things um but the the four staples are like so great so i I drew the one cup and then i i duplicated it and then i've got like the different color tops for the the four flavors of the water ice i want to go right now yeah i mean part of me is like let's just say fuck it i'm just We don't need to record a podcast. We could just go eat water ice right now. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a separate thing. Yeah. Separate adventure. Oh, no. That sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Or do they have custard on top? No. Well, no. I mean, you can get it with custard on top, but, but like... That's not a thing like it is at Rita's. Uh, yeah. It's... I mean, it's available. It's just like... If you're going for water ice, then like, why would you get a gelato instead? Like, go for water ice. That's why you're there. So... Mm, I love the custard water ice yeah. combo. It is a good combo. Yeah. Okay, well, sorry. <laughs> sorry, we've gone on a tangent, but that's, just like, that is fuck. not my research hole at all. My yeah. research hole is related to my work. Um, so I work as a software engineer um, where I write code for websites. Specifically, I work for an e-commerce company, so we like have a website that sells clothing. Um, but what I tend to be really excited about and what tends to get me into research holes is the design part of this. Like, What are the decisions in 
how this component got designed. How did it get put together? Why is there a submit button? Or why is there not a submit button? Or like how did uh, the different pieces get laid out on the page? Why does this make it easier for the user to use? Kind of a, a area of design called user experience design or user interface design. So the designer is not just like designing the color of the button, they're also designing how the user is interacting with the button. So, so how do they figure that out? Is it like, well, that's a big question, but it is, is it like testing? Yeah, there's a lot of user testing. Okay. Um, a lot of times you're doing like focus groups, like as an example, uh, if you open up, like if you're about to close a window and it gives you that little like dialogue modal window that says like, are you sure you want to close? And you have two buttons there. One says okay and one says cancel. Um, generally, if you have a color on those buttons, like the cancel would be red and the okay would be green. Uh, so like if you switch those colors, but you don't switch the words, your users get confused and a designer would not make that decision ever to make an okay button look red and a cancel button look green. Like you're, you're just making the user frustrated through this design. That's not a choice you would make. Um, but even beyond that, uh, like there are choices that designers make for accessibility as well. There's like a whole set of guidelines around these accessibility standards. Um, they're set by a group called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Like that's, it's what it's called. It exists as a body. Um, and they have kind of this set of rules for um, kind of things like color contrast and text size. By accessibility, do they mean like accessibility in terms of like people with disabilities or just accessibility for everyone? Everyone. Okay. Um, that's the thing that I feel like gets often misinterpreted in accessibility for like the internet. Um, if you have a, a website that is trying to meet accessibility guidelines and standards, um, not only because it is illegal if you don't meet certain accessibility standards, but also because it's a great idea. Like you shouldn't just do it because people will yell at you if you don't, but you should also do it because it, it helps all of your users and it's a smart thing. But um, you might have people that are uh, blind or like low sighted users that are using a screen reader. You might also have people that have dyslexia and have difficulty reading that are also using a screen reader. And then you might also have people like my mom who is 70 and has difficulty seeing small text. So you might have her who's not necessarily using a screen reader, but just needs to be able to see the text on the page. And so it needs to have like a contrast or, you know, enough labels or information around it to give you a better idea of what the text is and what it's doing. So um, there's this board that sets the standards, yeah. right? Uh, they have this set of guidelines, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Um, is an awkward acronym that's WCAG, <laughs> W-C-A-G. Um, but like the thing that I kind of went down as an even deeper research hole because this just keeps going. There uh -huh. is endless amounts of information in accessibility on the web. Um, first, I started to get into like how to make a website accessible for screen readers, which is really interesting if you've ever turned on like your voiceover on your Mac. Is like there's a function in system preferences and you can turn on settings and add on voiceover, and then it'll just narrate everything that you're doing, and it is overwhelming because like literally everything you click on it just announces and it's like it's a lot if you don't if you're if you have your screen reader turned on and you're tabbing through 
like using your your tab key to like navigate through the website it'll announce every field that you've gone into and it'll announce information about that field it'll say like what the label is and whether or not the field is required and um, other information that might be helpful about the field so it's like really interesting to hear what it announces and what it doesn't um, you can also set for each of these fields when you are writing the code for those fields you are telling it what to announce you give it a label it'll announce it only like the first time also the information about color contrast is also incredibly fascinating <laughs> i got like <laughs> super into it there was this like amazing twitter thread about um how the color contrast requirements were built and what is wrong about them and, and kind of why they're getting changed right now the way we output color on the internet is called rgb so it's additive color you have um, a red channel, a green channel, and a blue channel, and they get put together to make white. So each of these uh, like channels of red, green, and blue um, are on a scale from zero to 255. Um, so like if I am trying to create a color that is completely red, I would have um, each of the, the numbers for R, G, and B together in like a little set of parentheses so I would have like if I wanted red I would have like 255 for R and then zero for G and zero for B so that's like the color red I see on the internet if, if I wanted to make that color that's I would write RGB and then 255 for red and then if you wanted to make pink or like another color it would be like somewhere in the middle of the things right yeah so yeah. like um if you wanted like a mauve color, you'd probably have like completely red, so you'd have 255, and then you might have like a little bit of green and a little bit of blue. So you'd have like 255 and then 50 and 50 or something, and it would make like a peachy mauve color or something. Um, so like you're able to combine these different things in like an additive way. This is, if you learned about the color wheel, you know, you have additive color and subtractive color, and we have like, uh, like pigment is subtractive color and then light color wheel is an additive color wheel so this is an additive color wheel um so like if you have um each of these colors and you're able to like add each of the numbers together you get a number that kind of explains how bright that color is um currently uh so like white as an example is all three of these colors together so you'd have 255 255 255 each three channels are at full like velocity they're, they're all the way and then black is of course zero 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 because there's nothing there we're removing all of the colors to get black because it's light um so each of these channels are kind of given a weight to them so the current color contrast requirements has like this complicated math formula to like multiply each of the channels by its weighted value wow um to create its number um, what you end up with are numbers that don't quite work. A light or like a medium color on a dark background, it is slightly harder to read than a medium color on a light background, even if the ratios are exactly the same. Hmm. So it's possible that you can make a text that like meets the ratio but isn't actually readable to a user. And it gets super confusing and frustrating. So um, what was the Twitter thread saying? Um, you can pull it up because it's super interesting. 
Uh, we'll link to this thread in the show notes because I think there are some pictures on it that um, Kristen's showing me that are very helpful. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's, it's hard to, to explain. Defri- yeah, it's sometimes hard to describe visual things. But she just showed me, if, if we could try and describe it, she just showed me a picture of like two images where like two basically blocks of text with a text with a background one the one background is gray the one the other is black and it's super weird that they're weighted the same because it's just very clear that like the white on the gray background is super easy to read Mm -hmm. and the sort of like is that also white on the black background no it's gray it's gray on black yeah you have the same they just have like white to gray and they just shifted it so it's like the gray to a, a black instead so yeah. it's, it's the same difference in luminosity between the, the background and the color but so is it like their math is wrong or they're weighing things the wrong way like what what's going on there uh <laughs> i don't i don't know i no, seems, you don't have to say I, yeah yeah it just seems like um i mean it's clear they should re- it's good they're revising it yeah right? yeah it seems like uh, we didn't really like think about all these different pieces of this when they originally built it. They were just like, oh, well, we perceive red, green, and blue differently, so that's how we'll weight it, and then that's it. That's all we care about is the, the difference and not how the difference starts out, like whether or not the difference is towards the top of the scale or towards the bottom of the scale. Also, um, when these specs were created, um, it was using a reference of a very old monitor, like our old... CRT monitors yeah. aren't able to create colors as brightly as our current monitors are. So like one of the pictures you showed me, the black with the gray text, mm-hmm. the black background with the gray text made me think of like an old GeoCities website or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of weird because it's like, this is a standard that's been in place for, you know, decades now, but mm-hmm. technology has changed so much in that time and it hasn't been updated in that time. So uh, they're working on a way to revise that, but it does take a very long process. And there's a lot of people involved in working towards that decision. So they, they need to kind of all come to a decision together and make that agreement. But this is not, it's not an easy process. They all fight over like, you know, whether or not one piece is better, or one piece is more important. And it, it takes a long time, it seems. But why that research hole? Um, like, why do you think it appeals to you so much in particular? Uh, so... Can I show you how to use the internet the way that I use the internet? Is yeah. That, is that a thing? Um, yeah. We're okay. going to have to try and describe it to listeners, but it'll be a fun challenge. <laughs> okay. You can stay on this page. Oh, I can. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter what page you're on. Uh-huh. Okay. Can you right-click? Can you click on inspect in this right-click menu? All right. We are in the element inspector. We're in Chrome as a browser. Uh, the Element Inspector is where I live. <gasps> this is the website. Wait, can I just pause and say? <laughs> yeah. So basically, I use an online like website called Cast. That is our uh, that I use to record this uh-huh. program. And what Kristen brought up is just a bunch of code. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is on every website. Every web- you can do this literally anywhere. You can do it on Instagram. I do it all the time because I steal images from Instagram sometimes. I'm uh-huh. very sorry, Facebook. No, I'm not. You're a giant company. Yeah, Suck fuck it. you, Facebook. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but So this is available on literally every website. This lovely icon that looks like um, an arrow in the bottom right corner of a square. 
um, that's in the element inspector and I can use that like if I click that I can hover over elements on the page and select them specifically which is great it's weird. I'm feeling very nervous right now because I'm like, will this fuck up the recording? But it won't. It's just the code. It won't. It's, it's just, just the code. <laughs> nothing, nothing will happen. Um, so what's really cool about this is once I've clicked an individual element, you can see there's a section on the right um, that shows me all of the styles for that element. Um, and the styles are where all of this color contrast accessibility information is happening. So we can see that this particular element that I've clicked on has a color of this like this is a gray color, I guess, and the yeah. background color of white. Um, but what Chrome is really great at is giving you a lot of information that you can use to do my job. Um, so if I click on color, because this element has both a color and a background color applied to it, if I click the actual color box on the color property, uh, the box that shows up shows me a color picker and the hex value for the color and it also tells me the contrast ratio, which is fantastic. So this is my favorite part, is you can actually look at this and see whether or not it meets the contrast ratio guidelines. So uh, just as an example, we had earlier, we talked about the fact that there are two um, kind of standards, the WCAG AA and then the AAA. Which right, is a it lot meets stricter. the minimum guidelines, but not. Yes, so this particular uh, color contrast, um, it's using a hex value of Wait, wait, can I just say, the particular color contrast is the raise your hand button, right? Yeah. So there's there's an option to, it's just a button that says raise your hand in blue and the button is white. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, but this particular uh, contrast ratio is 6.62, which meets AA, but the, which the AA requirement is 4.5, but the AAA requirement is 7.0. So it does not meet that requirement, and in fact it gives you this little suggestion to wow. fix the color if you want to. Um, this will not actually fix the the color like in their code. You know, this would just fix like your browser version of it. So as soon as I refresh the page or whatever, it would go away and it would, it would go back to this current color. But um, it would just let you see what it looks like. Um, you can also change it to like whatever you want. This is where I love the element inspector because you can change anything on the page and it makes me very excited. Um, so like if I wanted, this button to say something else, I can just double click it and then write whatever junk text and it'll say that ah! on the page. This is, uh, this is my job, is just changing things in the browser. Uh, wow. Yeah, the, the Element Inspector is my favorite and I love it so much because you just get to play around with things. It's, it's great because I feel like um, a lot of times when you're just looking at code and you don't have like an active instance of the code like this, then it's very difficult to visualize what the changes that you're making will look like and how you can interact with them and what they do and everything. But being able to just change uh, everything on the page through the element inspector really helps you get like a, a look at what's happening and, and what you need to do to get things where they or where you want them to go. Um, so the appeal to you of using the appeal of using the element inspector is that you can just fuck with any website to oh, make yeah. it look however you want. Yeah. And um, that's fun. There have been a bunch of times where someone's like, oh, this person didn't say this on Twitter, and then I'll just go to their Twitter page and then like open the element inspector and edit the elements on the page to make it look like they said something and then screenshot it and be like, what if they did say that awful thing? And they're oh like, that didn't happen. God. You can't actually go to that their Twitter and like find that, but I have created that because I can 
uh, edit the DOM and everything. You I, have so much power. Yeah, you can do the same thing if you have Photoshop. It's just so much easier if you had the Element Inspector because you don't like it is creating the visuals for you based on the the input that you've given it. But okay, I see why this is fascinating and appealing because it makes you feel like a god uh -huh. of the internet, um, like being able to change anything. But why why is accessibility interesting to you in particular? Um, I feel like I really enjoy like knowing how everyone experiences the website and being able to create a good experience for those people. Um, so like uh, many moons ago, I worked at an agency and we would um, make what like kind of agency. It was the, the same thing that I do now where I would make e-commerce websites. Okay. Um, but I was helping people adjust their websites on a particular e-commerce platform that was mostly like kind of get up and go like Shopify. It was it was very similar to Shopify. So I was making like custom websites for these uh, merchants that had, you know, their websites on the e-commerce platform and I was adjusting how their website looked and everything, especially if they wanted custom functionality, we were building all that for them. Um, but there was one uh, really cool feature that I had built for this merchant that was really going to benefit their customers. And it was, I was really excited about it. I was like, I feel like this has a lot of good potential and it's gonna solve a lot of pain points for this particular merchant and they never used it. And I was <gasps> so upset. <laughs> I was like, I spent so much time on this and I was really proud of the work that I had done. Like I felt like it was coded really well and it, it looked really great. And I talked to them about why they never used it. And they're like, oh, it's not in an area that I ever really look at. So I just don't remember that it exists. And I just don't, I don't use it because it, I don't think of it. It's not, you know, in the front of my mind. So I just never get to it. And I was like, oh, so like, even if I build a really cool thing that I think is really cool and it, it functions really well and I think it's gonna work really well. If the user doesn't care about it or it isn't in a place that they're even gonna look, then it doesn't matter. And mm. it just makes me so upset. <laughs> there is the possibility that there is something completely outside of my control that will impact my ability to actually like help the user get to what they need to do. So it like, it, I feel like that's kind of where I got started in it because I was interested in why why would someone not want to build the thing that I'm building? Or why would someone not want to use the thing that I'm building? Why would it be less exciting than I think it is? Um, so I feel like anytime I build a feature, uh, as soon as it's done and it's actually live on the website and you can see it and interact with it, I will uh, go home and I will tell my partner, hey, I finished this thing. You can see the, the new header that I built or the search bar that now has a submit button or something. Um, and I get really excited about it and I ask him to like, use it uh, and I feel like a lot of times his uh, level of excitement about the feature that I've built is significantly less than mine sure <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just like okay great there's a yeah the, the logo's on the left I don't really care and it, it's less uh, it helps me understand the perspective of what someone who is not you know the person that built it is feeling uh, as opposed to me where I, I just get really excited about it I also um Back when I had worked at an agency building e-commerce websites, I had helped build um, this one website for like a larger client that was used by a lot of people. Like they're a very popular product. And so I was very excited when they finally launched and I told my mom and I was like, mom, there's finally a website that I have built that you can use because it's a product that you're interested in. And like, 
normally the the products that it was building were like smaller um like mom and pop e-commerce shops like they weren't they didn't have a, a large product audience they didn't have a big demographic but this one did so i was very excited and i was like mom you have to go to the website and see what i built and she's like okay <laughs> and i was sitting next to her when she opened the website for the first time and she just started clicking everything everything on the page she clicked on it didn't matter if it was a button it didn't matter if it was text it was an image she just clicked it and i was like this is not how i envisioned someone would interact with these things at all and it just some things broke because like the way that we tested a user interacting with the website was very different from what my mom was doing and it, it got me really interested in like um, what we call QA, which is like your quality testing the user, like you're pretending to be the user on the website and just trying to do whatever you can to break it. Like that is the goal of a, a QA engineer. So it was really interesting to watch my mom interact with the website because as a tech savvy millennial, the way I interact with the website is very different from my mom who is 70. It's yeah. Not, it's not the same at all. Like she doesn't understand what's happening as much as I do. And so she's but do you think she was clicking on everything because she knew you built it and she was just excited to see what you did? No, no. No, she was clicking on everything to try and buy stuff. Oh, no. She just didn't know that it's not a good idea to click on everything. She Oof. just like was like, oh, yeah, it's a website. And so she's just like clicking as she's scrolling all the time, like on everything. Oh, shit. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't expect you to just click as you scroll. Okay. So like, you know, she'd end up on a, a page that I didn't think you could get to or something because she just clicked on the link somewhere and then just kept clicking. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's not, I didn't expect that to happen at all. Like there was, there's a bunch of user testing research done by this lovely company called Baymard that does usability testing. It's like, that's their, their bread and butter. They put out these focus studies um, where they had people go through a bunch of different e-commerce websites mostly. Um, and just interact with them in different ways. And they ask them a lot of questions about like, do you understand if you needed to search for something, what would you do? And they ask them to like kind of follow the process of how they would perform basic actions on the website. Um, but like I've worked in e-commerce for seven years now. And like, I understand e-commerce and what all the different pieces of a website look like and how they work and what they're supposed to do. And it seems that that knowledge is not as common as I had thought. So as an example, if you're on a category page, a lot of times you can hover over an individual tile for a product and there will be a button that shows up called Quick, quick Shop or like uh, Quick Cart or something. It'll say something like that. Um, and you can click on that button and it'll open like a new window, like not a new page, a smaller window that just shows you a little bit of information about the product. It'll generally have a, the image for the product, the name, um, any like skew selection action, so like size and color, and then the add to cart button. Um, it probably won't have product details or reviews or anything. It's just like a small like overview of the product. Um, and generally there's also a button on there that'll say like view full details. So you can actually get to the full product page and see the extra information like reviews and the details. And maybe there's like measurement and fit information and shipping and returns and extra stuff. Um, but like, I understand that Quick Shop is very different from the product page. And I understand each of their purposes. They are different. They, they each have an intended goal. And right. One is a teeny window with a little bit and yeah. the product page has everything. Yeah. Um, but there's a bunch of um, like user testing from Baymart that says that a lot of people don't understand that a Quick Shop is not the product page. They just think that's the product page and that's what they've gotten to because they hovered over the product tile on the category page 
And then they clicked it, and that's what they got. And they didn't realize necessarily that they clicked on something called Quick Shop as opposed to the tile itself, and those are different things. Mm. And they didn't understand that, like, they're not supposed to get all of this information on the Quick Shop. Like, they didn't realize that there is a different experience that they could have that would give them all the information they need. So it's... I understand that these are different things, but apparently it's not as common as I had thought. Like, I thought, like, oh, yeah, it's a Quick Shop, of course. Like, we build that all the time. It also... Um, a lot of the user testing shows that quick shops don't actually help people buy more products. Like a lot of e-commerce websites will have this functionality available to the user, but it doesn't actually help the user add more products to their cart and check out. It just like lets them look at more products. So like part of your fascination with this is just about being in other people's brains uh-huh. because your brain is so specific yeah. and other people's brains are really different and that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I also have like sympathy for being really excited about a very simple header or a header that looks very simple that like where it's not necessarily about the design, but it's about like the cleanness or the cohesiveness or like all these internal goals that like no one else would get excited about if they don't live in your world (laughs) like like that must be hard kind of we uh we spent months recently building this feature it shows up on a product page and if you're on a product page directly above the add to cart button there will be a little line of text that says um arrives in three to five business days to one nine one four six like it'll say uh a time frame and it'll say the zip code that the user is in and this feature, this little estimated delivery date, took months, months to build. Like, oh my god! Literally, like six months at least. It took a very long time. A whole team. It wasn't just me. There were like five of us working on building this feature <laughs> to like get it to work right. And it's like it's it's finally live, and it's very exciting. But like I look at this and I'm very excited of all of the work that went into the you know the logic behind it and figuring out when to show it and how to get the zip code and like how do we determine which zip code to use so like as an example um by default we just grab the zip code from the user's like geolocation data so we're using the browser information that they're sending about where you are to get like your zip code where we figured that out then but if the user's logged in then you have an address on your profile. So we should probably use that zip code, maybe? Um, so like, there's logic there of like, where do we get the zip code from and what do we look at first? And then like, maybe the user doesn't have geolocation available on their browser. Like, what do we do then? Like, how do we get this information? And then there's a bunch of products that shouldn't have this estimated delivery date available at all. Mm. Um, so like, maybe they don't ship from us. Maybe they're drop shipped or, you know, they're back ordered or, only available for pre-order or something. So like we wouldn't want to show this like time frame thing. Uh, and then also like that date is changing every time the user changes the SKU. So if they change the size, that's going to be, you know, a different delivery date because we're looking at a different inventory pool. So like there's a bunch of logic behind that. It is insane what wow. goes behind this one tiny line of text. But like it finally goes live and I come home and I'm like, Greg, look at this. And he's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, well, that's, I mean, it took months of work, but it's it's great that you're nonchalant about this. There's a book by Nicholson Baker that I'm thinking of that I really want you to read now. It's The Mezzanine. Okay. Yeah. So this was 
published in the late 80s. Um, This is a book that Carmen introduced me and my brother to, and me and my brother read it and loved it. But um, basically, the plot of it is that a guy is going down an escalator. Mm -hmm. And the book starts when he begins going down the escalator and ends when he's done going down the escalator, or something like that. Um, Oh, wow. And But the whole book is just him thinking about stuff from, it's like about his day in like a normal sort of office workplace and he's thinking of but he thinks about every little piece of it and he's thinking about like the inventions like like and it's from the 80s so it's retro in some ways like he thinks about the like the thing in the bathroom where you put your hands under the air dryer mm-hmm. and like how he has like feelings about that you know versus versus the toilet paper and he has feelings about like the park bench he's gonna sit on later and he's just he's thinking about staplers you know and I guess that reminds me of the same kind of minutiae that you deal with every day yeah because he the the whole point of the book or one of the points of the book is it gets you thinking about the world in a way that you usually don't because you just use these things and you never think about them mm-hmm. and to me it's like a very joyful experience to read um and yeah I I it'd be cool to be in your head for a day and like look at the internet that way oh yeah there's so much minutia <laughs> on the internet it's like everything behind every every piece of text you read generally has like a lot of decisions behind it and like why it's there and how it exists and where it's located do you ever get like I guess bored like do you ever get like fuck this like (laughs) it's just a button like do you ever go there or not oh yeah Uh, like like, I have had tickets where we are moving like an icon by one pixel (laughs) there is a term for this it is called pixel pushing it is literally a thing where you push a pixel one over and you're like okay this is not necessary there's like this does not change the user experience the user does not care if this button is one pixel larger than it is right now why are we doing this? Why are we spending time on this? This is not, like, there are better ways for me to spend my time right now and for everyone, especially because, like, who makes that decision, though? Uh, generally, that type of decision will come from a designer where they're, like, oh. upset of where the, the icon is located and they're, like, it needs to move. Like, this isn't the, the <laughs> ideal experience. I'm like, okay, <laughs> Sometimes you're, like, I will complete this ticket just because it will, like, help create a balance within my team because, like, the designer is part of the same team that I'm working on. It's not just... Is there anything else you want to say about your research tool? Um, actually, it was... Uh, when you were talking about the book um so like as an example um a lot of these designs and what happens when people make these decisions can have bias in them and it gets really frustrating so if the user group that you're using to test things don't include like example uh that we were talking about before someone with use of only one arm like if you're not including parents or you're not including like uh people that have low sight like that will change your understanding of what you need to build because you're not accounting for these people in your initial designs for things so like uh kind of making sure that implicit bias is the thing that you account for when you're going through this process is really exciting so the thing that reminded me of this is that there is an issue that happened with a bunch of um hand soap dispensers in bathrooms 
where it would recognize a white person's hand put underneath it, but it wouldn't recognize a black person's hand. Oh my god! Yeah, just this is not hard at all. This is pretty easy. It's just oh, like make fuck. sure that you're testing with more than one skin tone. But it wasn't recognizing like the the pigment. It was looking for the contrast of like a white person's hand underneath, and it as long as it was a black person's hand, it wouldn't recognize it at all. And actually, um, the the sensors kind of have that same problem in a bunch of different types of tech. So, um, like a heart rate monitor, for example, um, if you're trying to use like the type of, like generally a heart rate monitor will use like a pulse oximeter where it's sending um, like a small beam of light through the skin to get to like your blood vessels and it's looking at like that information. But the way that that beam of light will permeate your skin is different depending on the melanin levels. So if it's trying to permeate through a lighter colored porcelain or alabaster skin tone, it's going to be a lot easier to penetrate through that than it would be if it's trying to penetrate through a very dark person's skin. So with a hand soap dispenser, it's like frustrating but also kind of funny because like it would be great if this worked, but like it doesn't like the biggest problem that happens there is just that the person can't wash their hands and like that's not okay at all but it's like it's not life or death problems but a heart rate monitor and if someone is wearing this for instance to check if they have you know cardiovascular problems you get into a lot worse scenarios of what can happen if this goes wrong like if you're not testing this properly and your heart rate monitor doesn't work correctly if you have darker skin then you are severely impacting your users if this fails. Oh my god. Um, there's like a long history of implicit bias in tech, which is another research hole that I am happy to talk about, but it will, it will take a very long time. But accessibility is like kind of the crux of this, is you're needing to include these people as part of your initial design. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for something I learned this week? Yeah. Do you so have people or is it still your dad? It is not. It is no longer my dad, it is people. Most of the people are... Leah, who was in <laughs> former guest. God okay. bless former guest Leah from season one. Um, this is this is uh, someone else, and then these three emails are Leah. So I'm just gonna open the first one. But Leah, like this is a good thing. Thank you. Um, I I love I love all the facts. Um, yeah. So Leah started just emailing me random facts ever since the episode. So this one is called what is it called? Forward Barber Poles Bloodletting. <laughs> it's a very good email title. It's so good. I feel like this is a terrifying chain letter that like you have to forward to 50 people immediately. <laughs> this is great. Okay, it starts with OMG. The look of the barber pole is linked to bloodletting, with red representing blood and white representing the bandages used to stem the bleeding. This is terrifying. The pole itself is said to symbolize the stick that a patient squeezed to make the veins in his arm stand out more prominently for the procedure. In Europe, barber poles traditionally are red and white, while in America the poles are red, white, and blue. I, I, did, not, I did not clock that. I always think of them as red and white. Yeah, same. The one theory holds that blue is symbolic of the veins cut during bloodletting, while another interpretation suggests blue was added to the pole as a show of patriotism and a nod to the nation's flag. <laughs> nice. That is an amazing fact, 
But I'm like, why? Why barber poles? Yeah, it, it feels like a fact that is fake. Like, it seems like a thing that would be an urban legend. Like, you know barber poles are related to bloodletting. But then, like, there's a link to history.com. So yeah, it maybe history.com says why. It seems legitimate and not, like, this sounds like a teenager made-up fact. But it's apparently real. Wow. Yeah, there's some history here in Middle Ages, blah, blah, blah. But why? Oh, it's because... Back in the day, barbers provided surgical treatments. What? By back in the day, I mean, so it says by the mid-1500s, English barbers were banned from providing surgical treatments, although they could continue extracting teeth. Hmm. So you go to your barber, you get a haircut, and you get your surgery. Nice. (laughs) She's continued into Sweeney Todd, and then that's... Shit. While bloodletting largely fell out of favor with the medical community in the 19th century, it's still used today to treat a small number of conditions. Well, I mean, the more you know, right? Yeah, that sounds amazing. I will never look at Barbara Poles. <laughs> That's a, it's just a really good, like, it's a really good, like, did you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next time you go to, like, a barber shop. It's it's weird that like I wonder why the rotating thing then happens because they all like they spin right that's, that's like a, a thing. great question yeah is that related to like I don't know yeah that's that does not fully check out no <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay well it seems so like uh like symbolic they really like it's not they're not even showing like blood drops it's just like the color you know it's it's not even there's nothing that depicts this history at all it's very like uh what's the word it's like separated from abstract it's very abstract it is abstract yeah so i it just brings up more questions yeah thank you so much leah uh listeners if you'd like to share something you learned this week either while researching the project or just living your life email me at researchholdpodcast at gmail.com i may read it in a future episode So we did say in the beginning where people can find you. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want listeners to know about you or your art? Uh, no, I think that's it. Yeah. Instagram, yeah. Etsy, Henson Haymade. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Definitely if you're looking for like holiday cards, uh-huh. that would be a, a really great time to check out Henson Handmade because there are some really one of a kind, very punny cards. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was exciting to be here. Just listen to Research Hole. I'm Val Howlett. Our music is by Joey Howlett. Our logo is by Leah Felicity Lucci. Goodbye. <laughs>